If you don't know, my name is Ricky Ragone. I'm the music and arts and youth pastor here uh, this morning. I'm uh, really happy to be able to step in and uh, just preach and, and uh, bring the word this morning while Pastor Lou has gotten a uh, much-needed vacation. So um, we had just wrapped up Galatians, but for the next two weeks we are in going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, uh, looking at something a little bit different, uh, just t- taking a quick series before uh, we hop into our longer sermon series. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we wrapped Galatians. That was, that was a great series, right? I mean, I, I thought it was just a good book to be in for a few months, challenging our personal tendencies to try to live under the law, try to save ourselves through our moral works. Uh, but also freeing, as we were reminded week after week, it's all about Christ. It's all what He's done. It's His Spirit at work in us. So if you missed that series, you missed maybe the last couple weeks of it, check it out. Whatever CDs we have in the back, it's on our website. Uh, definitely check that, uh, check, check that out. It was a great series. And if you saw the sign in the foyer, in a couple weeks we'll be starting a new sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And it's called Jesus is better. So as we look forward to that, which is it's just really, that's a solid book. They're all solid. It's the Bible. But it's going to be, uh, it's a good book. It's, it's a heady book, but it shows the preeminence of Christ in all things. So I would just recommend, recommend everyone be reading that as we move towards the start of that series in September. But today, we're going to be in the Gospel according to Matthew the first book of the New Testament. So if you would turn with me there, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, looking specifically this morning at verses 5 through 10. The, uh, the first, I guess, half of my life, um, I recited the Lord's Prayer every week, whether it be a Saturday or a Sunday, depending on what Mass I went to. And... Uh, recited this every week without much understanding to what am I saying? What are these words we're corporately regurgitating together? I I had no examination of it. I simply just said it. But this week in in studying, uh, it's definitely given me a new appreciation for this prayer that really is more a prayer for Jesus is giving us this prayer. It's not as much the Lord's prayer as disciples' prayer. He's giving us this to say before the Father, um, and it's just been a, a great time for me this week, and I just pray that this morning it would serve uh, the church well as we dive into it. And before we get to that, I want to give a little context and background to the Gospel according to Matthew, and then a little context and background to the Sermon on the Mount, because Matthew is the greater context, then we have this more immediate context of the sermon of which this prayer is kind of inside of. So I think understanding those things together will help us give a greater understanding to the Lord's Prayer. So that's what we're going to do. So the Gospel according to Matthew, actually an anonymous book. It doesn't have a a written by line like we see in Paul's letters. Um, But there's a complete universal acceptance that Matthew is the author of this book. And um, Matthew was a tax collector, a disciple of Jesus. And he's writing uh, from a Jewish background to a primarily Jewish audience. Um, something to remember with this gospel, with any of the gospel accounts, is the author is presenting 
the gospel, the good news of Christ um, in a certain manner. They're not exhaustive biographical works. Each gospel is presenting aspects of Jesus' life to present something specific as they tell of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, They're communicating something specific. When we were in the gospel according to John, John gave us that purpose statement. He wrote of specific signs so that those who would read them may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then he even says there are some signs that Jesus did that I did not include in this book. Matthew's the same way. He's just not presenting um, everything in the same style. He's writing to a specific end. Matthew wanted to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah and King that everyone was looking forward to in the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is that fulfillment. He is that Messiah. And we see it in the first chapter as we trace through this genealogy from Abraham through the line of David to Joseph to Jesus' birth to Mary. And throughout the Gospel account, Matthew takes the time to to emphasize these Old Testament messianic prophecies and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus fulfilled that here in his life. Um, Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the better Moses. As Jesus as one who taught with authority. Jesus is taking the scriptures that everyone thought they knew. The scriptures that had been radically abused by the Pharisees that had been turned into legalistic practice, Jesus is able to teach them in such a way that he gets back to the heart of the law. He actually teaches in a way that goes deeper than the law goes. And where we see that evidently in this gospel account is in the Sermon on the Mount. So, believe it or not, with the Sermon on the Mount, there are actually some different, differing views on, on what it is, who it's for, Is this a sermon purely just given for moral obedience? A list of do all these things? Uh, Is this sermon that Jesus is preaching, is it even for Christians today? Or is it for the kingdom that's to come? These are questions different commentators answer in different uh, ways. For the sake of time, I can't get into every argument and every view. Uh, We just don't have that kind of time. But I, I will say this. The Sermon on the Mount is rooted in the kingdom of God. It's obvious from the Beatitudes, which is at the very start of it. It's rooted in the kingdom of God. So our view of the kingdom affects our view of the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe it's true that Jesus has not set his kingdom up on earth in its truest and most full way yet. As Pastor Chris prayed this morning, we're awaiting that day. But we can see evidently around us that that kingdom's not fully established in a broken world. But Christ has most assuredly set up his rule and his reign in and through the church. There is an already and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. It began with Christ's incarnation. We'll see its fulfillment in the consummation of all things. Christ has achieved victory over sin and death in his resurrection, and we know he ascended and is, seated, and is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father. We know all that. And we know he's ruling and reigning in the hearts of all who believe in him. 
uh, all who are a part of his family, his spirit is dwelling within us. So, so Christ's kingdom is very much a present reality, but it's also this not yet. It's not fully here yet. So the Sermon on the Mount is all about what life in the kingdom of God should look like. And that's important to keep in mind because the kingdom that, that the people of the time wanted to see happen was very different than the kingdom Jesus was bringing in. They had a different Messiah in mind. And Jesus' kingdom does not look like what the Jewish people had thought it should look like. They were looking for this warrior king to come in, take over, set up a new political order. And Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, humble. He came to set up a different kingdom. To quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, Matthew puts the true teaching concerning the kingdom at the very forefront of his gospel for the great purpose of the sermon is to give an exposition of the kingdom as something which is essentially spiritual. It is that which governs and controls the heart and mind and outlook. So the principles of the Sermon on the Mount are for those in Christ today and should flow out of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. So the Sermon on the Mount is very much for anyone in Christ today. It's not a combination of rules to be obeyed so Christ will allow us into the kingdom, but rather it's how we should live because Christ has brought us in to be a part of that kingdom. Not to be lived out in our own strength, but through leaning on the ruler of the kingdom. Which is why Jesus gives us a manner in which to pray. A manner by which to ask and petition to God for help in living this way. For living in the kingdom. And that brings us to the Lord's Prayer. See, the principles of this prayer should prepare believers' hearts for kingdom living. The Lord's Prayer tunes our hearts to a love for God and a true gospel love for neighbor. It gives us a reverence for the Father and a repulsion to sin. We see that in these words. So with that said, we're going to take a look at how Jesus instructs us to pray. I'll give you the outline first, and then we'll read the scripture together. So the breakdown of how we're going to look at it, verses 5 through 8, the heart of prayer this is how Jesus basically tells us not to pray. We're going to look at God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. That's the breakdown of it. The, the passage does that itself. I didn't have to work very hard on this outline. Um, so if you're, hopefully you're there by this point with all that intro we had. But Matthew chapter 6, verses 5, we'll read all the way down through 13 and read the whole prayer in its entirety. So Jesus is speaking. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May the Lord add a blessing to His Word and His prayer that He's given us this morning. I will say, growing up Catholic, it's very weird to read that prayer in in a Protestant Bible um, because there's no arts. And I'm used to saying arts in that prayer. (laughs) So the heart of prayer... Let's get right to that. Jesus actually begins chapter 6 by saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's how he starts the tone of this section. Don't display your righteousness before all men. Don't practice it for the sake of being seen by them. And as he's speaking on this subject, he then moves into prayer. And he just goes in to say, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrite was a term used to describe an actor back then. They were, they were a hypocrite. They have their stage persona, and then they have their, their real life. Essentially, two faces, right? So that's, that's what he's referring to, not specifically an actor, but that, that kind of life that you have one face and then you have the other. Don't be like the hypocrites, Because how do they pray? They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Jesus is not talking about professional actors. He's talking about the self-righteous Pharisees. They want their holiness to be seen by all. They position themselves in such a way that others just can't help but to be punched in the face with their spirituality. Just slugging them right there like, I am holy. They put on the theatrics. They make themselves the center of attention. That's not the purpose of prayer. Whether it be public or otherwise. And those who pray in such a way, Jesus says, they have received their reward. They've received their reward. People are seeing them. If the attention of people is what they desire, then that's the reward they will see, receive. But the kingdom citizens of the kingdom of God should be different. So he says, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Go before the Lord in secret. Don't make it about you. Don't make it about your self-righteousness. Prayer is to be centered on God, first and foremost, and drawing near to Him. If you're not going to do it privately, you might as well not do it at all. Don't bother just doing it publicly. So does that mean there's no place for public prayer? Of, naturally, of course not. I literally just got done praying publicly. Right? Jesus prayed both privately and publicly. The apostles prayed privately and publicly. Public prayer is a tantamount piece of our corporate gathering. Jesus' beef isn't with public prayer. But it's with the heart of the one praying in public. The motivation behind the prayer. The desire to be seen praying publicly. This is probably not a desire many people have these days because when you ask, does someone want to pray? It's like, oh, I'm not, pray- I'm not praying publicly. And little did you know, you were just walking in accordance with what Jesus called you to. 
That's a joke. We should be able to be comfortable praying with one another. But uh, I think this tendency to want to be seen, this is why Jesus includes the street corner description. Right? Praying in the synagogues and at the street corners. I mean, would someone break out in prayer if not, like on the street, if not for wanting people to see them? It was said that the Pharisees would, would stop short of the synagogue and they would be on the street and they would break out to pray aloud as a way of communicating that I just have so much pent up things that I need to express to the Lord that I cannot wait till I'm in the synagogue. I just have to pray now. Having to pray is not like having to pee. That's not how it is. It's not it's just like you're sitting there doing the dance like, I just gotta pray. Like that's not, that's not what it is. It sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. We can be overflowing with what God is doing, but it doesn't have to erupt into, erupt into this the charade of, Dear Lord! Like that's not... It's not what it's about because it doesn't become about God. It automatically becomes of, wow, look at that holy man. It's not what it's about. Prayer should not be about who's watching, but the one listening. Prayer should be first and foremost about coming before and communicating with our Heavenly Father, seeking to draw near to Him. Mostly private, at times public. We're in private more than we are in public. Jesus isn't concerned about, much about where we pray, but the, the heart behind the prayer. Pressing on, he moves to another example. Jesus continues, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is another abuse of prayer Jesus points out, but not from the Pharisees. Now he's looking to the Gentiles. He's communicating, we all screw it up. right? Their tendency was to repetitiously pray the same words and mantras over and over, thinking if they repeat it enough, they will somehow be heard more clearly, uh, both by others and by God. That's just not how it works. It's not the right combination of phrases repeated that all of a sudden just opens up God's vault. Like, finally, you said it enough times, now I can do what I wanted to do. The other people, they were one time short on the repeat of whatever they were saying. But you, you got it. It's not about that. It's about the heart that honestly comes humbly before the Lord. He knows our needs before we even ask. That's what Jesus tells us. We don't need to throw up empty phrases with no substance. Again, Jesus isn't saying repetition is bad. The scriptures are full of repetition. If you look through the Psalms, repetition can impress great biblical truths into our hearts. It can emphasize something that's important. There's congregations that are very confessional. They repeat biblically informed creeds, confessions. Many recite the Lord's Prayer. And the ones doing it from a proper motivation do it as a means of growing in the gospel. Reciting these things as a, as a desire to deepen their understanding of God. The danger is when it just becomes this mindless activity that we do to appear spiritual to others and to God. Thinking uh, we can manipulate God himself. 
the ESV Study Bible has this note. He says, Jesus is prohibiting mindless mechanical repetition, not earnest repetition that flows from the imploring heart. It comes down to the heart. He's not condemning what we pray, but the heart motivation behind it. So there's a freedom to pray publicly. There's a freedom to pray in a, in a repetitious way. But none of it should bring glory to ourselves. None of it should point to us. It should all be about coming before God in prayer. Which then, I guess, begs the question, how should prayer look? If it shouldn't be self-righteous and attention-grabbing, or a repetitious charade, then how should it look? Because Jesus gave us these two negative examples, so what should we do? Thankfully, Jesus answers it for us clearly. He says, pray then like this. And when he says pray like this, he's not saying pray this exact prayer always. He's giving them a model for prayer. He's giving them a structure to follow. Some translations say, in this manner, therefore pray. Jesus is giving them a framework to follow. This is, this is what it should look like when you come before your Lord. And the prayer shows us where our prayer should always begin, and that's with God. He begins by saying, Our Father in heaven. Our Father. The word he uses is Abba, a personal, intimate way of referring to God. As a child to their father, to their dad. God is re- he had been referred to as Father in the Old Testament, but in a plural, nas- national sense. Of the nation. He's their Father. But it was not used in this individual coming before and one-on-one saying, you're my Father. Jesus is giving them something new. He's communicating that if you follow Him, if you are a citizen of His kingdom, God is not just some distant, impersonal being, but He's our Father. You've been granted intimacy with the Creator of the universe. This use of Father in our prayers is is so familiar. Even today, as I came up to pray, I just launched in with Father. Father. And I didn't give two, two thoughts about it. And I have been giving thoughts about it all week. But it's so common, we barely bat an eye. But this was truly a new way to think of prayer. Because beginning our prayers with a word like Father means that from the minute we start praying, we're being reminded of our adoption into the family of God. Just by being able to call God Father, we recall that we were once enemies to God. That we were orphans with no true home. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Rebels. But God loved us, adopted us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He made us alive in Christ. One small phrase, but just by being able to say Father reminds us of our value to Him. It reaffirms our identity in Him. Approaching God as Father is only a reality for those who are believers and followers of Christ. Let me say that again. Approaching God as Father is only a reality for those who are believers and followers in Christ. That may sound foreign to you. That sounds weird. Like, aren't we all God's children? 
It's only through Christ's redeeming work that we have the right to be called children of God. John 1.12 All human beings were, were made, are made, in the image and likeness of God. Have dignity, value, and worth. But because of sin, that has marred what God created as good. Because of that, there is this creature-creator relationship we have with God. But without Christ... Without Christ, we can't say we have a father-son relationship. We can't say we have a father-daughter relationship. That's only through the work of Christ. Now, it seems like a lot to unpack there. I'm just going to, if you want to know more about what that means, I literally preached an entire sermon on the subject of we're all God's children as we did a series called Did God Really Say That? a couple summers ago. We look at this. If you want to go deeper in that, I recommend that sermon to you. If for no other reason, at the very beginning, you have to see a really good lip-syncing of Alan Jackson's We're All God Children from Bill Blake. So, you look at that, and then you'll be like, all right, I guess I'll listen to the whole thing, because what is, what is being communicated? So please, it's my hope that in, in looking at that, you'd see that without Christ, there's a whole joy you haven't experienced. There's a whole love that you haven't experienced. And I, it's my desire for you to experience that. To know God as Father. God is a perfect Father. I'm sure there are those here who, whose paternal experience has not been good. It's been horrible. And you think, God as Father is not a very great title at all. But I tell you, God is not an abusive Father. God is not a neglectful father. God is not a cheating father. He's a loving, caring, giving, perfect father. He's not been corrupted by sin. Even the best fathers here on earth pale in comparison to him. He's a father worthy of the title, worthy of our love, and worthy of our worship. Which is why we pray, hallowed be your name. That's the first of six petitions in this prayer. Some might say seven. But this is is a petition we bring to God and we we ask that His name would be hallowed. That's not a word we use commonly. Literally the only time I've used it is in this prayer. But it means to, to, to honor, to be sanctified, to be set apart like holy. And we're not praying that God's name would become holy as though it's not holy already. That's not the case. He is holy. His name is holy. But this is a petition that we would see Him in that light. We would recognize Him as holy. That the name of God would be honored, hallowed in our lives and throughout the world. Martin Luther asked in his greater catechism, he said, how is the name of God hallowed among us? The answer he wrote is, when our life and doctrine are truly Christian. When our life and our doctrine are truly Christian. That's an interesting way to look at it. God's name is hallowed among us when our life reflects His glory and our beliefs align with the revelation of who He is that He's given us. Life, doctrine. We, we're living in a way that displays His glory and we're, we're believing what He has revealed to us in His Word. And I think Martin Luther's answer to that question demonstrates that God's name being hallowed is a petition we constantly need to be presenting 
Um, because our lives and our doctrine always need tuning up. We're always in need of sanctification by the Spirit. And it's by the Spirit's work alone that we're able to live in such a way that brings honor and glory to God and His name the way we're asking to in this prayer. The late R.C. Sproul said, The way in which we, re- re- we regard the name of God reveals the state of our hearts with respect to our attitude toward God Himself. A lack of regard for His name reveals more clearly than anything else a lack of regard for Him. So when Jesus says we should pray that God's name be regarded as holy, He is saying that we should regard Him as holy and that such a posture of reverence, awe, and respect for God should define everything in our lives. Did you ever get all that from just saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name? But if you think about what we're saying, that's what's unpacked there. Our foundation in life, our foundation in prayer needs to be a fear and a reverence for our God. Our Father. And this foundational petition leads into the second petition of this prayer. God's kingdom. Your kingdom come. So this petition is built on the foundation of God being our hallowed Father. If we really, truly want to see Him honored and His name glorified on this earth, we should desire that His kingdom come. Kent Hughes points out in his commentary that praying for God's kingdom recognizes the past, looks forward to the future, and also the present. So if we're looking at the past... Praying for God's kingdom to come should stir up in us a reminder that God has always been. He has always been. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. The omnipotent ruler over all from the beginning. Right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. His sovereign reign has been from the beginning. We as sinful people have just pushed him aside in pursuit of our own kingdom. We've rejected him as king to be our own kings. So your kingdom come recognizes the past, both the historical past that we read about and our own personal past that we lived before Christ in that sense. So your kingdom come. We can look to the past. We look ahead to the future. Praying for God's kingdom to come demonstrates a waiting for a more perfect kingdom to be established. The scriptures are clear. Christ is coming one day to establish his perfect reign and rule. That sin would be eradicated from existence and God and His people would dwell together forever and ever in harmony. That's the Revelation 21 hope we hold on to. That's the living hope Peter's referring to in his first epistle. We're asking that God would bring about that future kingdom. Looking back to the past, looking ahead to the future... We're also asking that God's kingdom would constantly collide with the sinful brokenness of the world today in our present, here and now. That our our kingdoms would be torn down and let God's be built. Like that hotel up by the thruway in 787. Clear out the old rundown kingdom, bring in a newer, better kingdom. Or in that case, a sonic We're praying that the principles of God's kingdom would take root here and now in us. 
that the dog-eat-dog, individualistic, selfish values of this world that we're all guilty of displaying and living out would be transformed to what Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount and all that he taught and all that he showed us. That meekness would overtake hubris. That hunger and thirst for righteousness would overtake hunger and thirst for pleasure. That mercy would overtake vengeance. That purity in heart would overtake the sinfulness in our hearts. That love for neighbor, including our enemies, would overtake our love for self and hatred for others. So when we're asking, when we pray, your kingdom come, none of these things are going to happen outside God's working and bringing it to fruition we're praying for it. God is presently and actively bringing His kingdom through one transformed soul at a time. So when we are, we, we live on mission, demonstrating and declaring the gospel for the sake of furthering the kingdom of God. So we're asking God that we would live in such a way that others would see and savor Jesus as Lord and that the kingdom of God would spread through one redeemed person at a time that the Spirit of God would be shaping and molding each member of the family of God to look more like Christ and to reflect His kingdom. So if we're asking for God's kingdom to come, we're asking for Him to rule and to reign. Asking for God's kingdom to come leads us to God's will being done. That's the third petition we have before us. This third petition, like the last, continues to build on those previous ones. If God is to be hallowed, His kingdom must, become, must come, and if His kingdom is going to come, then His will must be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. This is a petition that requires surrender. It's God's will over our will. Now before we press on in this, I think it's important to define the word will. Will is a shortened version of the name William. No, okay. All right. Not that will. All right, because there is, there is this, there's the sovereign will of God. So when we say will, we could be talking about the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God will be carried out no matter what. It's over all things. God's sovereign will. Then there's the perceptive, preceptive will of God. His desires for us, what we do, and how we live. An example of what I mean when I say preceptive will is God desires us to not murder people. Plain and simple. When we don't murder, we're in within the preceptive will of God. God said, don't do it. We didn't do it. That's good. For that aspect of life, we have many other aspects of life where we're outside the will of God and that preceptive will. Because we're within that will, like God wills that no one be murdered. We don't do it. We're doing his will. We murder someone, we're outside the preceptive will. God's sovereign will always achieves its purposes even when we as creatures deviate from his preceptive will. If, if that makes sense. We saw that clearly in the, the book of Samuel when we studied that. 
We saw a lot of people doing stuff that did not honor God, that was out of step with what his law had prescribed, and we see God's sovereign will working, using all of that to the end that God desired to achieve. So God's sovereign will is above all. Then there's his perceptive will, which is his desire for how we should walk. And I, I say that because we need, to, we need to ask the question, what will is Jesus talking about here? My short answer is I, I think there's an aspect of both. Let me expand on that. I believe that praying your will be done, given the context of the Sermon on the Mount, is primarily a petition for us to carry out the preceptive will of our Heavenly Father. Jesus is giving us all this this stuff, this substance in the sermon. And we're praying that we would be able to live in line with that. That we would live in a way that shows we hallow the name of God. That we honor Him as ruler of the kingdom. And that will only happen as we submit ourselves to the Spirit and His leading. So I I believe He's praying, "Your, Your will be done. Let me do Your will for the sake of Your name, for the sake of Your kingdom. Let me live in that way which brings You honor and glory. Because as human beings, we don't like relinquishing control. Especially as American human beings, we don't like relinquishing control. You can't tell me what to do. America. Right? That, that's us. But if we truly want to honor the name of God, we truly want to see His kingdom come, we need to submit, himself, submit ourselves to His will. That's why this prayer needs to be on our lips. See, our will isn't going to be in subjection to God's will until God does His work in us. So we're asking God, make us a people who will submit to your will. We're asking that His will would take over here on this earth as it is in heaven. There's no competing wills in heaven. God's will is the will of heaven. A redeemed people who are without sin will do the will of the Father. We're praying that that would be the case on earth. Presently, again, clearly, it's not the case. We're praying that God's will will would be done in us, through us, in display to the world. So we're asking that we would do those things which bring Him honor and glory. So though I think that's the primary petition, I also believe that asking God's will be done is a petition for us to be content in God's sovereign will. God's ultimate plan. Again, His sovereign will is going to be done. We're praying, God, make us, help us to be content in that. Because carrying out God's precepts seem meaningless if we are not content with His sovereignty and His sovereign will. Again, we like our wills. We like our control. And we need to pray that God would open clenched fists and turn them into open hands of surrender. We are God's children. We need to trust our Father. And in the midst of adversity, in the midst of tough news, in the midst of loss, in the midst of stress, in the midst of happiness, in the midst of success, we need to be able to pray, Your will be done. Whatever that looks like. That's a difficult posture to take. 
That's complete surrender and acknowledgement and trust in God's sovereignty. Now, I'm not standing up here preaching and you're saying, and I got that under control. No. Uh, I just had to keep hearing it in my head as I read through it and go, ah, I need to, God, your will be done. That would be more content. We're asking God to reshape our wills to be like His, that we would find contentment and peace in our Father's good and perfect will. So what does that look like? Sunday school answer, Jesus. That looks like Jesus. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and the perfect example of the one who does this prayer, who hallows the name of the Father, who submits to His kingdom, who who submits to His will, rather. We see that if we were to skip ahead to Matthew uh, 26. I'm going to read verse 36 and 39. Verse 39 is on the screen for you. Verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and and watch with me. Verse 39, And going a little further, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus Christ, on, on the eve of His death, is on His face before the Father in anguish over about what's to transpire. Arrest, betrayal, flogging, crucifixion, death. And He makes this request before His Father. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. He's essentially saying, if there's another way, Father, that would be great. If there's any other way, that would be fantastic. But even in the midst of that desire to have this cup passed from Him, He is content in the Father's will, and He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The outlook doesn't look good. I don't want to go down this road, but nevertheless, your will be done. Can we say that? Can we say that? That's our prayer, that we would be able to. Jesus knew the will of the Father. He knew the Scriptures. And Isaiah 53.10 said, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him, referring to Christ. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus' atoning sacrifice is the perfect example of God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father. Obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, Paul writes in Philippians. So when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, we're petitioning to be shaped and molded to look like Christ. That we would have a love and a reverence for our Father as Jesus did. That His kingdom would be first and foremost in our lives as it was for Jesus. And that we would desire 
and submit to God's will on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus did. Let this table this morning be a reminder of how Jesus lived this prayer out perfectly. As we we eat the bread, we drink the cup, we're remembering that Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father as his body was broken. He submitted himself to the will of the Father as his blood was shed to cover our sin. And we know that he did it ultimately for the Father's name to be glorified. That God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we are about to go into some time of quiet reflection, think on that, ponder that. Pray earnestly, honestly, that the words Jesus has given us to pray in this prayer Repent of how we've, we've completely failed to honor God. How we've, we've done everything in our power to build our own kingdom. How we've sought our own will above all. But also in that, celebrate that God's not finished with us. He's at work in us. That He's our perfect adoptive Father. He loves us, and His Spirit's going to continue to shape and to mold us. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ. You don't know God as Father. Again, it's my hope that you would. That you would trust in God's Son so you can know the joy of knowing God as Father. And if that is where you're at this morning, and you have not submitted your life to Christ, we just ask that you not participate and taking of the communion table. It's for the family of God, anyone who believes and trusts in Christ as Lord. So with all that said, in a couple minutes, or the band will play. And when, you, when you're ready, when you've spent that time in prayer, we're going to have two lines, the best we can, down the center aisle, and then go back to your seats out the side aisles. So let's pray together. Father, how precious it is that we can call you Father. Lord, we thank you for adopting us into your family through the amazing work of your Son, Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice on the cross. May it be our desire this morning to see your name hallowed above all. We repent of all those times we have not lived in such a way. We pray that your kingdom would come and we ask that you would take away every inclination in us to try and build our own kingdoms. And we want to serve our king. His name is Jesus. We ask that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Work in our hearts to do those things that are pleasing to you. Not for our own glory, not so others see our own self-righteousness, but to bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in the name of Jesus, the name which is above every name that we pray. Amen.